Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. Renee Powers here, and I am seated down. Seated down? I'm going to start that over. I'm sorry for a bad start. <laughs> Pre-disastered. Get it all out of the way first. Sorry, yeah. Viva. Okay. Hey, everyone. Renee Powers here, and today I am sitting down with Mariquita, who brought a question to our in- our, our internal Slack. Do you want to go yeah, for so, it? Just introduce yeah. what we're talking about. So I've been thinking a little bit about, well, recently I've been thinking a little bit about Copaganda and how we consume copaganda, which is a portmanteau of cop and propaganda in our literature and, you know, in media in general, but specifically in literature here. And for folks that aren't really aware of what copaganda is, it's sort of it's any kind of like display or media or presentation of the police force in an overtly positive light and sort of diminishing the negative actions of the police force or excusing it as sort of like a vigilante, like sexy kind of thing. So I was I was trying to figure out if there was like any good, if there were any good thrillers out there that aren't propaganda. I was so interested in this question that you posed because, or just this topic, because I love thrillers and I hate cops. Same! And I want to situate this appropriately. Feminist Book Club is an anti-police pro-abolition organization that's kind of the stance that we take as many of you know we are located in minneapolis proper we are located in an underserved neighborhood in 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 minneapolis and i personally live 10 blocks from what is now known as george george floyd square and saw firsthand the violence against protesters peaceful protesters at the hands of the Minneapolis Police Department. And that's what really opened my eyes just in the last couple of years. But I've always been really skeptical of especially white men that join the police force. Like, why? Why? (laughs) Why do you do that? And so I want to frame this conversation as a criticism of policing as a whole, as a system of the justice system as a whole. And I was doing a little research. I know you've done a little research. You know, I found this really great article in Teen Vogue that I will link in the show notes called What is Copaganda? And it goes on to describe, you know, like you said, Marikita, media or portrayals of police officers held up in a positive light on the individual and it ignores the kind of system of violence that policing instigates. It is... Copaganda is performative solidarity. We've all seen those videos of like the white cop dancing with like the little black kids in the street and it feels really icky or like the hugs that happen during the riots between police and protesters. It just does not yeah, and, sit and some right of the me. and some of the protesters like commented, you know, like here they are hugging us or kneeling with us or standing with us or holding these signs with us. And then an hour later, they're beating us and macing us. Yeah, yeah. That an hour later, they're in riot gear. When yeah, when it's, when the camera isn't showing their faces yeah. anymore. Yeah, 
And this this article in Teen Vogue, it's called What is Copaganda and How to Spot It? The author is Palika Makam. She says, cops don't need your help promoting their image. They already have the funding, the power, and the protective policies on their side to do it themselves. She goes on to point out that the United States spends more than a billion, a hundred billion, billion with a B, a hundred billion dollars annually on policing. That is absurd. And it what does it do? Intense. Nothing. That's intense. Well, it, I mean, it's a, it, I would argue that it does do a lot. But it's nothing, ha- more harm nothing than very good. good. Yeah. 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 Go ahead. Well, it, it, I'm trying to gather my thoughts here because... I also want to be really clear that, like, we're not trying to shame anybody for what they like to read or what they like to watch. Absolutely, We want to we criticize the system that murders and maims and keeps people down, specific underserved people, specific communities of people. But but we're not trying to tell you you shouldn't like what you like we just think we should be consuming these things ethically and i think this harkens back to conversations that we've had on this podcast and on our blog and in our community about true crime as a genre and why we consume true crime what we get out of it and then kind of the ethical snafu of participating in the true crime genre as a consumer and as a creator Uh, it's we contain multitudes and can like and critique things at the same time. Yeah. So I'm glad you said that. Yeah, I, you know, there's some, there's some, I mean, I love thrillers is the thing. I really do. I think they're endlessly entertaining. They can be distracting when you're in a stressful space in your life and you just need to be transported somewhere else. But I can't really f- find any that don't involve cops. <laughs> I love thrillers true too. I think it it's one of my favorite genres and I think it's because there is this, controlled anxiety i mean i am a a deeply anxious person and being able to read a story where i know it will make me anxious but it's in a controlled environment and therefore i can i feel safer in that makes Mm -hmm. me feel safe i have to sneeze hang on i can't believe i can't believe you'd sneeze on me like this i scared it away you did (laughs) now i'm just like i just have a weird tingly an interrupted um, sneeze is the worst. It is the worst. It's like I'm edging. So true. Oh, I just need that sweet, sweet release. So so one of the things that, you know, since you struggle to find thrillers without copaganda, I thought that we would kind of brainstorm some. I would share some that I have read and enjoyed. I will also say, you know, on the topic of can like problematic things, one of my favorite books of the last couple of years, and I think I called it my favorite book of 2021, is Firekeeper's Daughter by Angeline Bully, which mm-hmm. is, I mean, our main character goes undercover with the FBI to to investigate a drug ring. And that's not great. Yeah. I, but yeah. I love that book. I thought it was so, so well done. The pacing, the storytelling, everything, the characters, I loved them all. And so I can I can love the characters. I can love the book. I can love the story. I can hate the, the propaganda of it. The real damage of propaganda. And it starts young. You know, I think you can read any article and they talk about Paw Patrol, <laughs> uh-huh. which, which is propaganda for, the, for the, those that are too young to even spell their own names, you know, or, or we had, what's the crime fighter dog i can't remember his name in the trench coat. oh yeah yeah oh he came gosh. to our school yeah at, same like, the dare dog school. wasn't he part of dare 
Maybe he was. I don't remember. Someone is going to look it up. Someone right now yep. is yelling at their yep. podcast, yep. like saying what it is. Sorry, I apologize. You know, but like the 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 damage that comes from that is that you ingrain in people really early on that the police are the good guys. And what that means is that if someone has been hurt in in an altercation with police, if someone's been killed, if they've been maimed, it's because they did something wrong. Because we already start from a foundation of knowing that the police are the good guys, you know. And that that knowledge being given to us at like such a young age is hard to reverse. And it's hard to see these communities that are affected in a negative way and to hear their stories and to believe those stories when fundamentally your brain is wired to see that as incorrect. Now, one book that I want to bring up that I actually didn't finish because it felt leaned too much towards propaganda but I had really high hopes for it is, and I think that ye, this has been on your radar too, Blackwater Falls by Ozma yeah. Zinahat Khan. Yes. So the premise is, I believe she's a Muslim woman detective who is part of the community response unit in outside of Denver. And she is investigating what she believes are hate crimes of other worshipers at the mosque that she attends. She is technically a cop and the police force or the sheriff's department is really crooked and she's coming from a different unit and working with the sheriff's department and it has potential but it really was I, I got like halfway through it and I was like this is arguing so much for police reform rather than dismantling the police and it's it didn't I wanted it to be a really inclusive look at crime fighting. <laughs> yeah. And it does some really important things, but ultimately I felt like it fell short and I couldn't, I just didn't want to power through the rest of it. Did you get a chance to read it at all? Or, I did. Or start I did. I don't remember how far I got into it. I struggled to like get interested in it to begin with. I just, I wasn't in a place to, to really feel moved by it, but I, I did like pick it back up again and try again. And it just felt to me like, the book was really trying to have it both ways and and very like loudly wanting to have it both ways. Yeah. It's not it's not subtle about its criticism of the police, but it's also not subtle about wanting there to be a police force. Exactly. I really wanted it to take a stand of abolition and it didn't. And another one on my list of ones that didn't really pass the snip test, even though I really wanted them to, is Shudder by Ramona Emerson. Has this crossed your desk at all? Not, nope, not this one. Okay, so this is a crime novel. I don't believe she's technically a police officer. She is a crime scene photographer, and this tackles missing and murdered Indigenous women. It tackles poverty in indigenous communities i believe the author and the main character are dine nabaco don't quote me on that one but i do know it is an indigenous author and an indigenous main character again really wanted this to be more pro-abolition and more critical of the police force and policing as a whole and it really was just another cog in the machine and it made me so sad although the mystery part of it was great louise penny's books i've i've read a lot of louise penny's books and i and i like them as like cozies but they're so problematic they're so problematic there's one book that i returned to in the series i don't even remember 
where it was in the series that like I had to put it down. It was so dated. But this is another this is another series where and the and the show Three Pines is on Amazon Prime now where it's trying to have it both ways. You know, they've got the good hearted police officer who like cares about the indigenous communities and or the I guess he's a detective or inspector. He's an inspector. But and he's trying to um root out corruption in the police force. But he's still, you know, it's not portray it doesn't portray that accurately. It just seems like it's trying to like sweeten it up a little bit. I don't know. Brooklyn Nine Nine, the TV show, did this really well. They came back to the <laughs> final season after all of the police brutality in the news and the uprisings. And you know, one of the main characters left the police force, but she was still doing detective work. She was a PI, and maybe that's why I like Veronica Mars and Jessica Jones so much. Those shows because it's solving crimes, but they're not part of the police. Hundred <laughs> percent. They're PIs, so maybe I want to see more. Like, I want to see more than that. More of that. I've noticed badass, this... badass women as PIs. Right. I'd sign up great? for that. Yes. That's one of my favorite TV tropes. Here I am. Yeah. Just a girl standing in front of the publishing industry telling them to give me more badass lady PIs. One thing, Marikita, if you have not read this book, I feel like it is 110% up your alley. Scorched Grace by Margot Duahi. Have you heard of this at all? Okay, let me pitch this to you. I think, and here's what I like about it first is it shows the importance of first responders who are not cops because at the center is arson and a arson investigator is a secondary character. Our main character, and this is apparently going to be a series, our main character, her name is Sister Holiday. She's a nun. She is a tattooed, cursing, chain-smoking, queer, vision nun who has had a tough life in a band and decided to join the sisterhood. It takes place in New Orleans. It has this kind of sweltering heat of New Orleans and this like, I, I'm talking about it on another episode. So I will just refer everybody to that episode about what the fuck was that episode about? Oh, some of my favorite reads of 2023 so far. I, this is a this is a five star, but she goes to investigate the arson that happens at the convent and the Catholic school that she works at, and she works side by side with the fire arson investigator who is a first responder but not necessarily a cop. We don't see firefighters attacking people of color, you know? Right? Yeah. <laughs> like that's yeah. not part. We don't see EMTs. We don't see you know the Coast Guard like this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this it, is it's very a joke, specific but... to the police department. Yeah, it's a joke, but people don't, you know, have said like, you don't say like, fuck the fire department. The same no. way you say fuck the police. Like, Hell yeah. They don't like go and build a fire or start a fire so they can like put it out and look like heroes. Like, right. Exactly. So if you're, if you like the idea of first responder stories and investigative stories that don't necessarily rely on the police, Scorched Grace by Margot Dwahi, I... I had such a good time listening to this book. I did it on audio and it's great. All right. All right. That's going to go on my list. But I've also seen this theme of domestic thrillers. You know, the quintessential one is like Gillian Flynn, Girl on the Train, like these kinds of books. I would say, you know, Rachel Hawkins does it really well these days. Andrea Bartz does it really well. Stephanie Robel. But we run up against the... With domestic thrillers, the bone that I have to pick with them is there's, A, there's not a whole lot of 
pops usually, but it really relies on the pain or death or otherwise emotional damage of a woman at the center. And it, I just don't want to read that all the time. Yeah, I can't think of one. I can't think of one that I've read that revolves around the death or injury of a man. Right, right. I'm thinking particularly of House of the Pines by Ana Reyes, which you just interviewed Ana Reyes, which is a great interview. Go back and look, listen to that. That is, I loved that book. That was such a great thriller, such a great mystery at the center where you're trying to figure out like, what the hell happened to this dead woman again? <laughs> yeah, it's it's just dead, dead ladies everywhere. I'm like, can we get a, can we get a mystery where it's not? murder why does it always have to be murder can we have an art heist i love a good art heist have you ever read the art thief by b.a paris oh i read it so long ago i know it's yeah. like, like the back of my mind i always loved that book yeah there's so many other things to choose from that could be like a mystery that don't have to like further injure women even if it's just fictional women like can we can we have a break please yeah yeah so those are my I don't know. Those were my thoughts that I had written down of, you know, ones that include propaganda that I still enjoy, ones that didn't pass the sniff test and I didn't enjoy yeah. <laughs> some domestic thrillers, some, you know, bad Catholics doing P.I. work. I love you a like good the bad, bad Catholic. Catholic. I love a good bad Catholic story. <laughs> <laughs> there are any other thrillers that you've read recently that you want to talk about or bring up here? Well, that's the that's I think the thing that I was running into really yeah. is that I was craving that I needed to like scratch that itch, but I couldn't find anything that wasn't going to piss me off. Yeah. And I didn't want to be pissed off. Like I have enough of that. I'm good at that. I'm I'm I've met my quota. <laughs> pissiness. You're at your pissiness, pissiness threshold. Yes, absolutely. All emotions are valid. But I didn't want to be pissed off while I was reading something. But I wanted something to like grip me like that. It's been a stressful couple of years and I wanted to be distracted. And I just didn't want to like follow this renegade cop around solving the mystery of who kidnapped the lady and drowned her in the lake or whatever. I just right. didn't want that. And that's what I was seeing everywhere. And I know that's not all that there is. I know there's not. Yeah. But it got so, me thinking about it. So, listeners, if you have suggestions for thrillers where maybe it's not murder and doesn't involve police work, hit us up. I am interested. Kita is interested. This is something that we are craving. Publishers, if you're listening to this, editors, if you're listening to this, give us more badass PIs. <laughs> oh, a hundredfold more. All right. Well, with that, I think we'll say our goodbyes. Thank you so much for hanging and chatting about these things with me today. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Now I've got a new book to add to my TBR. Hell yeah. This episode is brought to you in collaboration with The Woman Cards. The Woman Cards is a small family business created and run by a brother-sister duo. They sell feminist playing cards celebrating diverse women from all walks of life who changed the world, even though the deck was stacked against them. They're currently offering three decks, the Woman Card Classic featuring American women, 
Girl Power, featuring young women, and Tech Deck, featuring pioneering women in STEM. Each deck features 15 hand-illustrated portraits of the women spotlighted in the deck, and all of their products are proudly made in the United States. You can order online at thewomancards.com and use code DEALMEIN23 for 10% off your order. That's thewomancards.com, and promo code is DEALMEIN23 for 10% off. Hi, my name is Ashley, a Feminist Book Club content contributor, and I am joined today with Diane Marie Brown. She is a professor at Orange Coast College. She is also a public health professional for the Long Beach Health Department, and she joins us today to talk about her debut novel, Black Candle Women. Diane, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Ashley. My first question for you is, what is your definition of feminism? To me, that's a good question. To me, when I think of feminism, I think of more than just equality or equal access. To me, it really, feminism really means seeking equity where it has been denied and it requires action. So being proactive in in order for people who identify as women to have outcomes that are and in line with everyone else. Thank you. And what is Black Candle Women about? Right. So Black Candle Women is tells a story of a multi-generational family whose lives are affected by a curse, one that kills anyone that they fall in love with. So to protect themselves from the curse, they live their isolated lives in Southern California but they have to face the curse head on when the teenager in the family brings home a love interest for the first time. So the story takes place in present day in Southern California, but we go back to 1950s New Orleans to learn about the curse's origin, which was put into place by a voodoo sorcerer. And there is a line in the book about Augusta. She's being told that she's not born to live her own life. What brought you to that line and how did that line resonate with the story? So Augusta is the matriarch of the family and she she's the one that we go back with in New Orleans in the 1950s. And she is approached by a woman named Bella Nova and told that she is in a long line of individuals that are gifted and saying that she's related to a voodoo saint that are called Loa that are very powerful and that her life should be devoted to helping other women. So that's something that's put upon her because she has this gift and it's something that she's kind of embodied or at least tried to in giving back to help other other people, particularly And how did you keep this story grounded? And I ask that because I would think of a story of this nature. It would be, it would feel a little little bit more of like this wool, like this wool, wool, sorceress kind of, you know, black cloud. But the story is quite grounded given how the women are protecting themselves from this curse. So how did you keep the story grounded? Well, I mean, I really wanted to think about it as not, there is magic in it, yes. And maybe I've even heard people talk about it as a fantasy. Mm -hmm. But I really 
to think about people who might really believe some of the magical, so-called magical elements or the abilities that some people have. It kind of makes me think about superstitions or rituals that people have that they've learned for to get a particular outcome or for healing or to help them through a particular time in their life and how these traditions or these rituals get passed down through families. And that's really what I wanted to share in this, this story with the different steps and that they take and the tools that they use to try to force outcome. And how did you develop the generations? As you said, this is a multi-generational story and all mm-hmm. of the women are so different from each other, yet they belong to, in this family and they love one another just in different ways. How did you develop the generations? Well, as far as characterizing some of these women, I think I took bits and pieces from people I know, people in my own family, relatives, and thinking about the the unique uniqueness that we have as individuals in our own families, because we have so many different personalities and we're exposed to different things, but there's also the the nature and the nurture that we share, the way that we're brought up is similar and in families we share the same genes. So there are some things that we have in common, but but still we, you can have so many unique personalities within one family. So I just wanted to show kind of that dichotomy and those dynamics. I grew up as an only child, so yeah. I always imagined, you know, what it would be like to have a sister and so kind of, or I didn't have my grandparents. So I tried to imagine, you know, what would it be like to have a, live in the same house as a grandparent or with several, several women in one house. And so it was just kind of a, a lot of imagination thinking through some of these relationships. Yes. and. Do you think people would be okay with living in this family dealing with the curse? I think about how some of the women talked or the women talked about having casual relationships with men, which some people would be okay with, or just, you know, moving and starting a new life from, from their troubled past or whatnot. Do you think people would be okay living with this curse in this family with the curse? Yes, that's that's an interesting question. So yeah, knowing that you have the potential to hurt and harm another person just because of your feelings, that's that can be a lot to put on someone. However, I think as human beings, for many of us, we love, we want to have relationships and love loving relationships with other people. And sometimes those are deep friendships. Sometimes those are with our family members, but sometimes there is that romantic love, that sexual part of us that wants to connect with other people. And and so I could see people taking risks, seeing how far they could push it. And maybe if they tell themselves, well, you know, as long as I don't fall in love, maybe right. it will be okay. So rationalizing those risks, I think I I wanted to explore that because I think that's, you know, probably human nature to take on some of those, deal with some of those emotions and balance what we do. Yeah. And I was thinking about how, like, how do you tell your heart, okay, no, 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 this person, we we can't fall in love. So we can just be with this person just enough. 
before our heart or before their heart is like fluttering or they're feeling the the goosebumps and the the emotions that come with falling in love and that they don't really get to participate in it. It's just, it's a hold that they put on themselves. Right. And even thinking about, you know, how do you know when you've crossed that line, right? And can you, can you stop yourself from, from, from doing that? So, yes. And there is a couple of mentions throughout the story about Saturday morning cleaning, which, <laughs> which is something that I am very familiar with when, <laughs> you know, Kirk Franklin would come on, we knew it was time to do our Saturday morning cleaning. What songs would you put on a playlist for this family Saturday morning cleaning? Oh, that's a good question. I definitely think there'd be some jazz just because they spent time in New Orleans. I, when I, added that in I thought about Saturdays at my own house and so we we did a lot of Stevie Wonder we play Stevie Wonder's greatest hits and some John Legend and then maybe there'd just be like a 80s R&B hip-hop playlist that one of them would turn on as well and where would you like our audience to buy Black Candle Women from well it's available just about everywhere that you can books. I always like to encourage people to purchase from their favorite indie bookstore or on bookshop, or it's also available in an audio version. And so yeah, just about anywhere that you can buy books, it's available. Diane Marie Brown, thank you for joining us to talk about your debut novel, Black Candle Women. Thank you so much. It's been great talking to you. Mayo Partners, Inc. is a Black-owned commercial real estate, urban planning, and community engagement firm based in St. Paul, Minnesota. We believe in developing generative results in the community while addressing the pressing challenges facing urban-built environments. Our work and belief system is rooted in applied empathy and putting people first. Our approach delivers thoughtful, human-centered solutions for clients and cultivates sustainable relationships. We make a conscious effort to hire local residents as community liaisons, staff, and consultants to support engagement in local communities. We hire local talents as interns and have developed an artist-in-residence program in order to build up young and upcoming professionals within our community. We are currently hiring for our summer intern program. We provide real estate development and business technical assistance to small business owners, entrepreneurs, and companies that share our values. So if you're a business owner looking to do things the right way the first time, it's time to do things the NAO way. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for Brownie Points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. well-read woman is a dangerous creature, creature. 
Oh, oh, oh.